Amen. Ever since I heard that song, it has it quickly became one of my favorites and something that I have taught to just about every church I've been to. So just a, a wonderful declaration of grace. It, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but uh, it just goes from our experience of grace from eternity past. He knew me from eternity. And then it ends in eternity future. Never cease to thank you for your grace. And so one of the things I'd like to say is that we will spend all eternity plumbing the depths of God's grace toward us, and we will never exhaust the subject. We will be learning about it from this day forward forevermore. And so let's look in Matthew chapter 12 once again this morning. Matthew chapter 12. If you want to follow along in the Bible that is in the pew in front of you, you can find that on page 972, 972, or Matthew chapter 12 this morning. It's a very kind of kind of shorter text, um, just really about five verses, and so but uh, some very profound truths in these verses. So we're gonna look at them and just see their significance for us today. Beginning in verse uh, 38 through 42. It says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Says the word of the Lord. You you may have heard about this uh, thing that happened just really just north of us about three hours. Uh, There's a church in, in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, Missouri sounds an awful lot like misery to me, but that's beyond the point. So, but uh, it's uh, St. James Church in Springfield, Missouri, and they had a, they had a kind of a week of power, so they called it. And the claim is is that there is a woman. Now her backstory is verified. In fact, you can find the newspaper articles about it. But uh, she was a victim of domestic abuse. Her husband shot her. She was in a coma for, for two months. Uh, I believe there was some brain damage. And, and then also, uh, somehow, I guess he shot her foot and she lost three toes in the process. Well, during this uh, week of power that the church was putting on, our friend, the prophet Bill Johnson, the pastor of Bethel Church, as you are very familiar, is a church that we have significant disagreements with. In fact, I would consider them to be heretics. But uh, anyway, supposedly, 
during this event, uh, he was praying for creative miracles, whatever that is, and her three toes grew back. Now, they've offered no proof of this. There was, in a, in a room full of thousands of people with professional audio video equipment, no one caught it on tape, no one caught it on video. Uh, her testimony has since been removed from Facebook, though you can still look at it in Twitter. And the pastor and everyone involved has refused to show any kind of corroborating evidence whatsoever uh, because of her privacy. Have, have you ever met someone that, um, it, it's kind of a non-falsifiable argument, you know, it's like no matter what evidence you give, it's, you know, it either proves or somehow or another they twist it to prove their argument, you know? It's like, uh, well, uh, we're testifying to this, so, it, so it's true. Well, show us the evidence. Well, the lack of evidence shows that you don't have enough faith and we have enough faith, therefore that shows that it's true. And, and it's just no matter what you do, um, it, it just, they can always twist it to make it prove their argument. You ever met someone like that? Um, it's just, it, it's, you can't argue with someone like that. You really can't. It's like uh, Bobby was telling me about this flat earth documentary where uh, they were doing some experiment to prove that the earth was flat and they shot a laser out 27 miles and it was supposed to do this thing that if it was flat and it didn't do the thing and they were like, well, obviously we need to, uh, uh, we need to work on our experiment a little bit because we need more data. It's like, no, the earth is round. <laughs> so <laughs> you, just, you, just love, you just love those kinds of arguments. It's unfalsifiable. And so, beloved, some people would accuse the church of having that kind of argument also. And yet the truth is, is that we have a very sound faith because there is one sign that was given that we rest on. And that sign is a sign that proves all the other signs that Jesus gave us. And so this morning, my hope is to help you rest in the promise of the resurrection of Christ. I know, I know, it's, not an East, I know it's not Easter weekend, but yes, we are gonna be preaching on the resurrection this morning. And so I know that's kind of off the script, but that's okay. The resurrection of Christ is the true sign of our faith. And if the resurrection didn't happen, then that means our faith is not true. And so we're gonna be looking at that this morning. We're gonna see the significance of it in our text. But just to remind you of where we've been, you remember we've been looking at Matthew chapter 12, and you remember that Christ, this whole section began in verse 22 when Christ healed a man who was demon-possessed. And the symptoms of that possession was that he was mute, he was unable to speak, and he was blind, he was unable to see. And when Christ healed him, Matthew takes special care to show that he both spoke and saw. And as you see through the rest of chapter 12, up until our text today, that is a theme that is carrying on throughout these conversations. It included the unforgivable sin. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago before Father's Day. That, that, that confession is a reflection of an unbelieving heart. And, and we saw that a couple of weeks ago. And so in verses 23 through 37, we followed kind of the theme of speaking, 
But now, in these last couple of verses, we're looking at a theme of seeing. Go back to the blind man and the mute man. He, he spoke and he saw. And now, we saw the importance of speaking. Now, we're going to look at the Pharisees asking to see a sign. And the first thing I, I want to deal with is that as you look in verse 38, it says, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. We want to see a sign. And you know, if you read that, that, that almost sounds like an honest request, doesn't it? I mean, it's kind of natural, isn't it? I mean, I think if all of us were honest, wouldn't you like to see some kind of physical evidence at some point? I mean, wouldn't you have loved to have been when the, there when the Red Sea parted for Moses? Wouldn't you have loved to have seen the resurrected Christ? We will one day, but I would have loved to have seen it at the time. I would have loved to have seen Jesus turn water into wine. Granted, I'm Baptist, I can't drink it, but it still would have been cool, right? Um, you, uh, you, I would have loved to have seen these signs. The feeding of the 5,000, I wish I had been there, right? So it's perfectly natural to, to, to want to see evidence of your faith. There, there's nothing wrong with that. The question is, is that what these guys are doing? And I think the answer is no. For a couple reasons. Number one, if you look at the um, if you look at the parallel text, like for example in Mark chapter eight verse eleven, it says that the Pharisees came to him and began to argue with him, seeking us from him a sign from heaven to test him. So, so this is done out of argument. They are they are testing him, and the same thing in the parallel text in Luke eleven sixteen, it says that while others to test him, look at this kept seeking from him a sign. In other words, this is not a one-time request. They're doing it over and over and over again. Just show me a sign. If you're who you say you are, show me a sign. Show me a sign. Show me a sign. Ever met someone like that? Yeah. And so this is not an honest request. And then on top of that, here's the thing. What started this conversation to begin with? Verse 22, what did Jesus do? He showed a sign. They accused him of sorcery. And so again, no matter what he did to try to convince them, they would twist it around and make it proof for their argument instead. It's not what they were doing. They were not asking for, to have their faith strengthened. It was unbelieving, it was hypocritical, and it was insulting for them to ask Jesus this. So what does that mean for us, beloved, this morning? I'm, I'm gonna say something that I think might be a little controversial at first, but when we, as we go through the text, I think you're gonna see this. I think we need to beware of sign-seeking. I think we need to beware. We need to be on guard against seeking for signs. And that's what we're gonna see. Why is this? Because there are three dangers of it that we see here in the text. Three dangers. So beginning in, in verse 39, when we are seeking signs, when we are constantly asking for signs over and over and over again, it exposes our unbelief. It exposes our unbelief. Look in verse 39. Look at how Jesus answers. He says, he answered him and said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Now, now stop right there for a minute. We're gonna look at that. Why does he say 
that those who seek for a sign are evil and adulterous. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Evil is pretty self-explanatory, but if you look at the word adulterous, that has, a, that has an Old Testament history behind it, that God in the Old Testament, whenever the Israelites were seeking after another God or essentially when they would sin against God, he would refer to that and he compared it to spiritual adultery. They were like cheating on God with other gods, essentially. That's most prominent in Hosea, the book of Hosea. Uh, chapter three, verse one, but, but all the other prophets after Hosea pick up on this, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, all of them pick up on this. And seeking things that will satisfy you other than God is the root of all of our sin and it is essentially compared to adultery in the Old Testament. You say, well, wait a minute, Randy. All throughout the Old Testament, we see people who are asking for signs and God gives them to them, right? And so it seems a little odd. Why would Jesus say an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign when all throughout the Old Testament, we see stuff like this? In fact, sometimes the people don't even ask. For example, Hezekiah, the Lord offered him. He said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna heal your disease. You're gonna live for 15 more years Here's a sign to prove what I just said. He doesn't even offer. Hezekiah doesn't even ask. The Lord offered. And so how can we look at stuff like that and say an evil and adulterous generation seeks for signs? Well, if you read a lot of those texts carefully, you're gonna see that they're not always presented in a positive light. They're not always presented in a positive light. Let me ask you a question. Who is the most popular person who sought a sign from God? What's the most popular sign? Probably Gideon, right? Gideon and the, and the fleece. You remember in Judges chapter six, when Gideon is being told by God, you're going to uh, take the Midianites and all of this, and he's getting ready to go to battle and says, God, I want to, if you're really gonna save the, uh, Israel through me, then here's a fleece, he throws it out, and I want the first day, I want it to rain on the fleece, but I want all the ground to be dry around it, and the Lord does it. And so, but then the next day, even that's not enough. He says, okay, I'm gonna throw out the same fleece again. This time, I want the fleece to be dry and I want the ground all around it to be wet, right? And by the way, this is not the first sign that God gave Gideon, not even in that chapter. And so, and I've heard a lot of people say, well, you know, you need to throw out a fleece and you need to, you need to determine, you know, is this really the Lord's will? And I, I've even heard this compared to Christian scientists using the scientific method and, and, and stuff like that. But is the author really present, presenting this as a good thing? Is he really? Let's just look at it carefully. Look in Judges uh, chapter six. I've got these verses on the board. In chapter six and verse 14, look what God says. And Yahweh turned to Gideon and said, go in this strength of yours, which by the way, that's an ironic. Gideon had no strength. But he says, and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? And then you go a couple verses down in verse 16. Here's what it says. It says, but Yahweh said to him, surely I will be with you and you will strike down Midian as one man. 
In fact, as you go on, as he begins to build his army, the text says in verse 34 that Gideon was clothed with the spirit of the Lord. So he has the promise of God. He has the spirit of God. Why, why does he need the fleece? Why does he need the fleece? Beloved, the fleece was an act of unbelief. It was not an act of belief. In fact, by the time Gideon is finally convinced to go attack the Midianites, it takes a pagan dream to convince him that yes, I will win. He had no real faith in God. And the whole point of the story is not to make Gideon the hero, it's to make God the hero. That God is faithful in spite of imperfect and even fallen generals. And so is that an encouragement to seek signs? No, it's not. You know what the, here's the problem with, with sign seeking. Um, Roxanne loves to shop at Goodwill. I have never found a piece of clothing in Goodwill that I liked, that I wanted to get, okay? My fi I figure that people get rid of it for a reason, okay? That's my whole thing. But Roxanne can go there and she will dig through clothing and she will find brand new stuff with the tag still on it and she will bring me home clothing and I'll put it on. I'm like, man, I, I like, in fact, these pants came from Goodwill, come to think of it. And, and she, will find, she will find stuff that is awesome. And she's like, you know, that came from Goodwill. I'm like, how do you find this stuff? How do you find it? I, I go to Goodwill, I can't find a thing I like. How do you find it? She says, well, I know what I'm looking for and I know what I want. And because of that, she can find good stuff, right? I cannot. Now, put me in a used bookstore. Buddy, I'm your guy. Amen. I have found $100 textbooks and I've paid four bucks for them, all right? I mean, I'm your guy in a used bookstore. And Roxanne's even asked me the same thing. How do you find the books? I'm like, because I know what I want and I know what I'm looking for, right? Beloved, that's the problem with signs is that you tend to see what you want. You tend to see what you're looking for. It's like buying a new car. What do you do on the lot? You wanna find a car that not a lot of people have, right? You buy the car, what do you start seeing? You start seeing that car everywhere, right? Why? Because now you're looking for it, right? And so, listen, beloved, sometimes, like we see in Hezekiah, sometimes in God's providence, yes, he gives confirmation that you are doing his will. In fact, the more you obey the scriptures, the more you become sensitive to his will, the more you will experience that. But that's an act of his grace. We need to be very careful seeking signs. I have seen people before who ignore their biblical responsibilities. They think they're justified in their rebellion because they receive some sign from God who releases them from their biblical responsibilities. That will never happen, by the way. God will not tell you to do something that is against his word. And so we just gotta be careful. Just gotta be careful. 
We need to rest our faith on something more certain. We need to rest our faith on something more secure. And that we find in verses 39, the rest of verses 39 through 40. Why should we guard against sign seeking? Because it tends to ignore the true basis of our belief. It tends to ignore the true basis of our belief. Look what he goes on to say. He says, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. The prophet Jonah. That is the one sign that will be given to this generation, the, the sign of the prophet Jonah. And what is happening here is that it's corresponding. He says, the sign that you will have, the sign that this generation will get is the sign that corresponds with the prophet Jonah's experience and with his writing about it. What is that sign? He goes on in verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is the sign that will be given to the world. This is the most important sign. It is the basis of our belief. And so, again, there's a couple things we need to, we need to look at. And I, and I debated on whether to say this or not, but uh, I, I think uh, it's not as hot anymore. I don't hear it as much anymore. But, uh, but I used to hear it a lot. Some people really take that three days and three nights very literal. And they'll, they'll basically come up with all these explanations how, how you know, Jesus was really crucified on Thursday or Jesus was really crucified on Wednesday. Now, in all honesty, I don't know that this is really an important debate. But I will say this, that the bulk of emphasis on in the New Testament is that he rose on the third day. You cannot have a perfect 72 hours and have him raising on the third day. That's just mathematically impossible, all right? I mean, I'm not a math genius, but I'm pretty sure that's right. So you, you just can't do it. This is just an expression that, that he's using. And, and really the people who say that are missing the point. Because look what he says. He says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, beloved, that is a direct quote from Jonah chapter one, verse 17. And really chapter one, verse 17 in Jonah is really beginning chapter two. In fact, in, in the English text, the, they, they kind of got the chapter division wrong. It should have, chapter one, verse 17 should have been chapter two, verse one, right? And so, but if you look at that, you look on in chapter two and you look at how Jonah describes his experience in the well. And let's look at some of the things he says, like for instance, in verse two, here's what he says. He says, I cried out from help, for help from the belly of Shaul, which is Hebrew for the grave. I cried out from the belly of the grave and you heard my voice. Look on in uh, verse six, I think it is. Yeah, verse six, he says, the earth with its bars closed behind me forever, but you have brought up my life from the pit. In other words, Jonah is describing his experience of the well as a kind of death and resurrection. And the point is not how the exact number of hours that Christ is gonna be in the grave, but the point is that just like Jonah, who described his experience as a death and resurrection, so also the Son of Man will die and the Son of Man will be resurrected. 
Jonah was swallowed up by the fish. Jesus was swallowed up by death. Jonah came out of the fish and praise God, Jesus came out of the grave. And that is the basis of our faith. That's the sign of our faith. That is the sign of our faith. Look at Romans chapter four, verse 25. He says, for who Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, first, Pat, first Peter chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What does our living hope come from? It comes from the resurrection. Christ is risen from the grave and therefore so will we. That's the point. That's the point. Again, this can be a little confusing because Jesus, after this text, will go on to perform more miracles. In fact, he'll perform so many, we don't even know about most of them. John chapter, the end of chapter, uh, the end of the gospel of John, I'll get it right in a second. The end of the gospel of John, he says that if all the things were written down that Jesus did while he was here, I suppose all the world could not contain the scroll of all of his works, but these were given so that you may believe. The, the gospel writers were strategic. They were specific in the signs they chose to give us. But Jesus will go on to perform more signs. So why does he tell the Pharisees here, there's only one sign you will receive from me. Because, beloved, all the miracles in the world, seeing all the miracles in the world, seeing all the signs in the world, what if the lady up in Springfield, what if she had three toes that grew back? I mean, I mean, honestly, between a little bit of brain damage and three toes, I might have chosen a healed brain, but you know, anyway, she got the toes. Okay. What, can that save her soul? So she can stand on her tippy toes today. Great. Is she going to heaven? I don't know. Because standing on your tippy toes is not gonna get you there. Beloved, all the miracles in the world, please hear me. All the miracles in the world will not satisfy your unbelief. All the miracles in the world will never satisfy your unbelief. They just won't. They just won't. You must be born again. You must be quickened by the Spirit. You must have faith in Christ. And there is only one act, there is only one work that can save your soul, and that is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was his death that makes your sins forgiven, and it is his resurrection that gives you new life. And that is what saves your soul. Rest in that. 
Why in the world would we choose drops in a bucket over the ocean? Why in the world would we choose uh, some little uh, trick or, or miracle or even little miracle, even if it's true? Why would we choose that over resting our faith in the risen Savior? Why would we do that? Who cares if some random statue is crying in some random country? We have the resurrection. Who cares about the rest? Why would we seek after these things? Miracles don't save. Think about this. Think about all the signs that Israel saw in Egypt. Think about that. How many did they see? They saw, well, first of all, they saw the two signs that God gave him, you know, the, the, the leprosy thing. And, and then the throwing the staff on the ground and it became a serpent, which by the way, that would be the end of my career with that staff. But... <laughs> Then he picks it back up and it becomes a staff again. He, uh, he saw the 10 plagues. They saw the crossing of the Red Sea. They saw God take on the most powerful empire in the world at the time and decimate them. They saw manna in the wilderness that fed them for 40 years. They saw water coming out of a rock, not once, but twice. But not one single one of those Israelites that came out of Egypt went into the promised land. Why? Because they were unbelieving. All the miracles in the world cannot save your soul. So let's rest our faith in what can save our soul, the resurrection of Christ. And you may never see a miracle in your life. That's okay. That's okay. Because the greatest miracle of all is when God takes a dead sinner and makes them alive through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every one of us who know Christ is a walking, talking, living, breathing miracle. Every one of us who know Christ has experienced the new birth, has experienced a spiritual resurrection, and one day we will be resurrected just like Christ. That's all the miracle I need. It's all the miracle we need. And so how do we respond? The problem with sign seeking is not just that it exposes our unbelief, it ignores the basis of our true belief, but finally it hinders the true expression of our belief. Look in uh, verses 41 and 42, which basically he says the same thing twice. Verse 41 and 42, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. He says in verse 42, the queen of the south will do the exact same thing. She will rise up. That's a reference to something that happened in, um, in 1 Kings chapter 10. Uh, the queen of Sheba, or Sheba as it's sometimes pronounced, um, she came to experience the wisdom of Solomon. Um, more we could say about that, but just like, but, but Jesus says that these Gentiles, these Greeks, these ones that were pagan, in the case of the Ninevites, some of the most vicious, some of the most violent pagans in the world, and yet they will rise up and they will condemn this generation. Why? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. 
Why will the queen of the south rise and condemn this generation? Because like the Magi who came hundreds of miles to see the baby Jesus and worship him, so she came from far away to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And like Herod and the priest who would not even go four miles down the road to see if Messiah had truly been born. So these Israelites had Jesus right in front of them, heard his words with their own ears, yet they refused to believe. They saw the works, they explained them away. They heard his words and they killed him for it. Not even realizing that the whole thing was part of God's plan from the beginning. Beloved, we must respond to his word. We must respond in faithful obedience. He says this twice. He says in verse 42, for something, or 41, behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He says in verse 42, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. What's the significance of that? Well, actually, if you go back to the beginning of verse 12, chapter 12, I keep doing that. You go back to the beginning of chapter 12, that first Sabbath controversy. Do you remember what Jesus told them in verse six? He told them something greater than the temple is here. And now something greater than Jonah is here. And something greater than Solomon is here. The temple, this massive structure, if you've been there, you just can't believe how big it is. And all we have left is the foundation. This place where the priests served God and committed sacrifice and and all of those things that they did in the service of God. Jesus says there's something greater than the temple here. Jonah, arguably one of the most successful prophets in the Old Testament. I mean, he went much, you know, despite his best efforts. He, he went to Nineveh, which was a place where the vicious and most violent of pagans. And at the preaching of Jonah, an entire city was saved through repentance, easily one of the most successful prophets of the Old Testament. Jesus says there's something greater than Jonah here. Solomon, oh my goodness, the wealth and the riches of Solomon, the kingdom of Solomon, under the reign of Solomon, all the promised land came into Israel's possession. All the promises were kept and came to fruition. Easily the greatest king of Israel. Jesus says something greater than Solomon is here. Are you catching a theme here? Jesus is the better priest. He is the better priest prophet. He is the better king. The better priest, the better prophet, and the better king. And we must respond. We must respond to the life he gives us as priest. He must respond to the truth he teaches us as prophet. And we must respond to the commands he gives us as king and faithful loving obedience. Let me uh, look in John chapter 12. I don't have this on the board, but John chapter 12. There's a, there's a 
kind of an incident that happens that seems a little strange when you read it. But um, some Greeks during the, during the Passover, right before Jesus is crucified, there's a group of uh, Gentiles, some Greeks that come to, uh, they come to Philip and they ask him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And, and so Philip goes, you know, he goes through the, through the things that, to, to get Christ for them, to say that there's a group of Gentiles, group of Greeks that wanna see you. <clears throat> and Jesus says in verse 23, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life for this world will keep it for eternal life. Um, it, 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 almost, it almost seems like he's ignoring them, doesn't it? It almost seems like he's ignoring them and, and not willing to see them. But, but actually what he's doing is he's answering their question. Sir, we would see Jesus. Beloved, if you want to see Jesus, you must come through the cross. A Jesus who is a mere prophet and nothing else will not save. A Jesus who is a mere priest will not save. A Jesus who is a mere king will not save. If you want to come to Christ, you must come through a crucified and risen Savior. And you must respond in faith. <clears throat> He's answering his request. No mere prophet, no mere priest, no mere king will do. We must come to God through a crucified and risen Savior. And so we need to guard against rebellious sign seeking. Now, again, I'm not talking about <clears throat> affirmation of obedience to God. I'm not talking about those kinds of things. But this, this kind of rebellious sign seeking, this this constantly ignoring the, the true basis of our faith, just building up excitement, sign after sign after sign after sign. We, we need to guard against that. We need to guard against that because it exposes our unbelief, it ignores the, base, the true basis of our belief and it hinders our obedience, the true response of our belief. I mean, if you're constantly looking for signs, then one thing you're not doing is obeying. You're not obeying the word. Because that's really the, the faithful response that God's looking for. So what can we do this morning? Maybe you're coming up on a big decision in your life. Maybe you're, I don't know, looking for another church. Maybe you're looking at a, possibly another job, at a move. You're looking at, you know, whatever. Maybe you're going through some doubts in your mind. Maybe you're experiencing some difficulties in your life. What can you do? Maybe, maybe you're just there where you just kind of wish you knew. You know, maybe, I mean, we've all been there. Sometimes we just kind of wish we could know, right? So, so, so what can we do with that? Just, just, a real, just some real quick kind of just wrapping up here. Number one, beloved, remember that doubts and questions are normal. You are not a bad Christian if you have doubts. You are not somehow less of a Christian if you have questions. In fact, that's the process of making your faith your own. Parents, don't get concerned when your kids start asking questions. 
because their faith is becoming their own. Just be ready to be prepared to answer them. And so don't be afraid of that. Number two, consider the source of the doubt or the uncertainty. You know, one reason why you might be doubting, one reason why you're, you might be experiencing this uncertainty is because you have unconfessed sin. It could be because you haven't been in the word. It could be that you haven't, um, whatever it is, can consider the source. What is the source of your doubt? Number three, Focus on obeying God's revealed will. Psalm 37, four says, if you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. Focus on obeying God's revealed will. And you'll be amazed how often that works itself out, that God becomes more specific and you find your calling and, and you find those things. But focus on Focus on obeying the word. Focus on serving. Number four, meditate on the promises of God. Meditate on the promises of God. You're obviously gonna have doubts if you're wanting him to keep promises that he never gave you. If you're misinterpreting a promise that you think this is from God and it's not, and of course he doesn't follow through with it, Focus on the actual promises of God. Meditate on the promises. And number five, in the words of my favorite theologian, Regis Philman, phone a friend. Call on the church. That's why we're here. We have guys, uh, Stefan, Stefan, raise your hand. If, Stefan is, uh, is an apologetic guru. Uh, Rob, you're, you're good at apologetics. Raise your hand. You have, you have these kinds of questions. Um, go see one of these guys. They can answer these questions. They, they've, they've studied this kind of stuff a long time. If you're struggling with doubt, maybe it's grief. Maybe, it's, maybe you have unconfessed sin. Come, come see me. Come see one of our godly deacons. Uh, Stefan's a deacon. Roy, you have Roy back there? Roy, raise your hand. Roy's one of our deacons. He can help you. Art. Back there, in the very back, back, back pew. Any one of their wives. Ladies, if you're more comfortable with coming to a lady, Miss uh, Melissa, Vanita, Bobby, right, raise your hands back there so everybody can see you. Yes, you. <laughs> so um, go to one of these ladies, go to one of these men. Or of course, you can also, you can always come to me. And so just... Just know there's help. And that's why the church exists, to help one another. So let's place our faith in the true sign. The true sign is the resurrection of Christ, the death and resurrection of our crucified Lord, which we are about to remember now in communion. So let's, let's close our eyes and pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your revealed word in our lives. <clears throat> and Father, as we prepare for this time in communion, I pray that you will renew our hearts, that you will give us once again a renewed living faith in our hearts. I wanna ask our uh, servants to come on down and ready for the Lord's Supper. If, um, if you are a believer in Christ,
you are trusting in Christ alone, his grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ, you are invited to this table. You don't have to be a member of our local church here. Uh, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, we, for your own um, good, we would ask you to refrain. But we do invite you to ask questions. Uh, anyone who is here who is partaking, uh, you can ask them what this is all about, and they'll explain it to you. Uh, that's why we do this so often, so that we can have those opportunities as a witness for you. So... So if you have questions about this, kids, if you want to ask your parents about it, please do. Parents, don't shush them. You know, always offer to explain it to them. And so let's go into this time together. I invite you to bow your heads.